this week on Restoring Confidence. This is clearly worse than the Great Recession, the biggest recession since the Great Depression. And life is not coming back. Hello, I'm Rita Tritcher. Welcome to Restoring Confidence, a podcast that looks at the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and plots a roadmap to recovery. Over the coming episodes, I'll be speaking with political, economic, and healthcare experts to examine how Canada and its key trading partners will emerge from this crisis. We'll explore the biggest challenges and the greatest opportunities. Our first guest is Ian Bremmer. He's an American political scientist and founder of Eurasia Group, which bills itself as the world's largest political risk consultancy. Mr. Bremmer has written numerous books about global affairs, and he serves as a foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large for Time magazine. I called Ian at his home in Massachusetts to talk about why he thinks we should brace for a global depression. He also shared his predictions for the U.S. presidential election and his reflections on the challenges facing Canada. Here's our conversation. I wanted to start off by asking you uh, what has surprised you the most about this pandemic and economic crisis? I suppose I've been surprised that the United States has been so incapable in its initial health care response. Uh, that the United States, that if you look at the, the, the difference in trajectory of the European Union as a whole and the United States as a whole, uh, I mean, granted, we have an election cycle coming up and, and, and that makes it harder. And we have a president that is um, not a strong leader. But, but leaving that aside, the U.S. is still the world superpower. We have incredible doctors, scientists, a very well-funded Centers for Disease Control. We've dealt with um, major epidemiological crises in the past. I, I've been surprised with how poorly the Americans have responded in that regard, particularly compared to other advanced industrial economies. Given the death toll from COVID, do you think average Americans have shifted their attitudes about the social safety net, including on the question of universal health care? Yeah, I do. Um, this is the biggest crisis of my lifetime. And um, it is uh, coming on the back of 40 years of growing inequality in the United States that has not been effectively addressed. This crisis is being born on the shoulders of the least privileged Americans, I'm not just Americans, I mean, it's also true for other people around the world, but I mean, if you look at who's getting the disease, who's dying from the disease, um, it's the people that can't socially distance effectively at home, it's the people that have jobs that do not lend themselves uh, to, to working from home, um, it's the jobs that most expose them to other people that might uh, have the disease, um, and the economic response has been pretty strong in the early days, but increasingly looks like it won't be for much longer. That's going to hurt even more while the marketplace, of course, is going gangbusters. And if you've got your, you know, a lot of money in a 401k, or you, you know, you're sitting uh, with lots of investments in your portfolio, you're doing just fine right now. It's not that that's necessarily suddenly created a new situation. I mean, again, this is not new, but it, it, will, it will exaggerate and it will dramatically accelerate 
uh, I think the the changes that were already underway in the United States and the world, creating a lot of anti-establishment sentiment and believing that our political institutions and the social safety net, as you mentioned, are not fit for purpose for most Americans, that the American dream really no longer applies here in the United States. Obviously, this uh global health crisis continues to create fallout for the economy. Um, You've predicted that we're headed towards a global depression, and I believe you called it a jagged swoosh recovery. What do you mean by that? I mean that when you look at what a depression is, there's no formal definition of a depression because they don't happen very often. We know what a recession is. We know that you're in technical recession if you have two quarters of, uh, you know, sort of negative growth, uh, one after the other. This is clearly worse than the Great Recession, the biggest recession since the Great Depression. Um, And not only that, when we think about a depression, it's usually because it's global, it's big, and life doesn't return afterwards to the status quo ante. It doesn't go back to the way it was. And I think the pandemic very clearly applies in all three of those ways. It affects every country. It's much bigger in scope than anything we saw during the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, And life is not coming back the way it was. And that's not just because we don't have a vaccine yet. and It's going to take a long time to get it out. It's also because of the acceleration of inequality. It's also because uh, so much more displacement from technology, so many more people that won't have jobs to go back to and will be permanently gone, but they won't have the training for the kind of jobs that will be available. Um, The way we think about travel, I think is gonna change. Uh, The way we think about the workplace, I think is gonna change. Now, the big difference between this and the Great Depression is that we're a lot richer now. So we can handle a depression much better than we could have. I mean, if you look at the the absolute quality of life, the standard of living in the US, in Europe, never mind in poorer countries around the world. I mean, at the time of the Great Depression, you know, you take 10%, 20% off of the average person's well-being, you're you're knocking them into we can't eat. Now, that's not true after decades of globalization. I, I mean, you know, Brazil today the average Brazilian is better off than the average American was during the Great Depression. So you do have to account, you know, over the course of 100 years for the fact that life standards for human beings, thank God, have increased dramatically. Uh, And so I think that the, the reason a lot of people are scared about calling this a depression is because they don't wanna think about, it's unimaginable that we could be going back to apple carts and selling pencils on the street, things like that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the scope and scale and impact of this crisis. And there, I think we need to be a bit more rigorous. You've raised some really interesting points. It makes me wonder, what are your thoughts about the outlook for business investment? Well, first of all, there's going to be, there has been and there will be an enormous amount of relief and bailout to corporations that otherwise won't make it or will make it, but will be 
uh, making it in a, in a much smaller and less effective way. And there will be conditionality attached to that money. So you're going to have a whole bunch of companies that are going to be thinking more about, well, how do I insource more effectively? How do I keep my American employees or my European employees or wherever they happen to be based? Because those are the people that are bailing me out. So I think you're going to see more of an unwind of globalization. Globalization won't be over. We'll still buy goods from China. We'll still be selling food and energy all over the world. Um, but I think that the supply chains for production will be uh, considerably shrunk. And that'll be true in part because of the technology cold war between the U.S. and China, in part uh, because we've had a long time of disruption that comes from the pandemic and fewer people traveling and all the rest. And in part because when you respond to these major bailouts and people domestically are angry they're going to focus more on what are you doing for me? How are you helping me? Um, and, you know, the fact is that free trade is by far the most economically efficient system in the world. But if the average person in your country doesn't feel like they've benefited, they're going to vote people in that will make sure that they have higher tariffs and they're spending more on you domestically. And they're not going to be moving towards free trade and offshoring. And that's 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 the failure of globalism, which I wrote about in my last book. I, I think that the bill is coming due on a lot of people that made a lot of money, but didn't pay attention to all of the people in their own backyard that were being displaced. And those people are angry right now. When your five-year plan turns into a five-day plan, you know you're going through business as unusual. Export Development Canada is here to help companies of all sizes with financial solutions and expert advice. Visit edc.ca today. So a slight pivot here, uh, because we want our listeners to also get to know you a bit as a, a person. We're wondering if you can tell us a bit about your childhood, your background, your upbringing, and how that has shaped your views and who you are as a person. I mean, I guess given that that's what you're looking for, um, I, I, the most relevant thing I could probably say is that, you know, despite being a white American male with a mother who did everything she could to, to help me be successful. Uh, so in other words, I kind of hit the lottery, but but we had no money uh, at all. I grew up in the projects um, outside of Boston. Uh, with with my mother and my brother, and and she had a high didn't finish high school. She eloped with my dad, uh, who was um, an enlisted man in the army, and then he died when I was four. So I mean, it's interesting that um, I mean I I grew up with a lot of really smart kids in the projects, but they all also did not come from any means at all, and so. I think that that gave me at least a sense of what it means to be underprivileged in a global order um, where if you have the right connections, everything opens for you. I mean, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how well you communicate your ideas. If you don't have access to gatekeepers, you are going nowhere in the global economy. And that's that's particularly uh, becoming more true in the United States than it used to be. And I think that when we talk about 
um, gender relations, when we talk about race relations, I'd be very, when we talk about U.S. relations with other countries in the world, I'd have a much harder time, I think, articulating my views if it hadn't been for the fact that I, I didn't grow up in a fundamental way with all of that privilege. And, and I think that's helpful uh, because I don't think of myself first and foremost as an American. Um, I, I, I mean, I've spent you know half of my life, the last 15, 20 years, traveling all over the world, going to 100 countries plus, whatever. Um, and, and the same way that I was raised Catholic, but I don't think that, that makes Christianity the best religion. It just happens to mean that I was randomly raised Catholic and it works for me. I, I kind of don't feel like being an American means that I'm somehow exceptional in my capabilities, my values, my worldview. Um, and I think that, so that that's really what informed kind of how I think about the world today, why I started Eurasia Group and G Zero. Um, and, and to the extent that I'm good at what I do, I think that, you know, it's not just a question of innate talent. It's also about what, you know, what your background is that forms the person you are. And in this case, I had this kind of unusual background where almost everyone else I know in U.S. foreign policy circles kind of came from some position where they had they already had those connections. They had that network. The U.S. election is obviously a major event that's on the horizon. Uh, it has implications not just for the American people, but people around the world. Uh, the U.S. is Canada's largest trading partner. So, of course, we take a lot of interest in what's happening uh, with our southern neighbor. Are you making any predictions on who is going to win? Well, if the election is um, free and fair, uh, Biden is certainly the favorite. I, it will not be an open and free election. That's not something we usually say in the United States, but there will be interference. In 2016, of course, there was some external interference, but it was still at the margins. This time around, there is likely to be internal interference. It is a pandemic. It will be contested. Um, particularly in swing states, there'll be massive numbers of lawsuits. Trump will not um, consider an election illegit- uh, legitimate if he loses. And if it's close, I suspect he'll have Republican support. This is why he got impeached, is because he tried uh, to politicize an investigation. He wanted to open an investigation by the Ukrainian government into Joe Biden and his son. And he was that was a party line vote, pretty much. So, I mean, obviously, he'll continue to do that. And uh, that means that the potential for a contested outcome where we have the election on November 3rd and in November 4th and November 11th and December 4th, we still don't know who the president is. I think that's that's reasonably likely. I think we might be heading in that direction. Wow. Wouldn't the American people revolt? What does that even mean? Would they stand for uh, interference? Explain explain what stand for means. Well, I... We've seen people take to the streets in this in the Black Lives Matter protest. We've seen people uh, come out in the middle of a pandemic to talk about inequities. Would there not be a, some sort of social uprising if there? Well, was I'm, I'm pressing you because I, I always, when people say stuff like that, I always want to know what it means. I mean, yeah, there've been Black Lives Matter movements, and I, I think it's meaningful. And you're seeing some corporations start to put money into it, and you're seeing some efforts to reform policing mostly at the local and state level. I, I think that 
if the elections are um, seen to be rigged and they're contested and there's a fight about it, I think there'll be demonstrations. Um, some of them might be violent, uh, but I don't, we're not talking about Belarus. We're not talking about Tunisia. Uh, we're talking about most Americans who are not prepared uh, to take up arms um, in support of uh, such principles. And we're also talking about a very deeply divided country that will not agree on what's happening. So when you say, well, Americans stand for it, which Americans? I mean, if it's the Trump supporting Americans, they're going to say that the Democrats are trying to steal his legitimate election away from him. And if it's the Democrats, they're going to say that Trump is uh, has done everything possible um, to ensure that this is an unfair election in his favor. And there's not there aren't a lot of people that are doing analysis in the middle of that. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think we have to recognize the consequences of a country where the fabric of information and discourse uh, that, 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 in, that, that is behind your politics is, is so divided, it's so ripped apart. I mean, there's just, it's very hard um, to, to say the whole country is going to come together on X, Y, or Z. The whole country is not even coming together in response to this pandemic. I mean, I was in New York for 9-11. I saw the second tower go down. The whole country came together after 9-11. Um, President Bush had 92% approval coming out of that, I think January 2002. Uh, Trump, this is a wor much worse crisis than 9-11. And Trump's lucky if he has 40% approval. Uh, this is not, there is no rally around the flag. There's no rally against the flag. There's no agreement at all. You've been credited for inadvertently coining President Trump's America First slogan in a note to clients back in 2016. Can you please tell us about that experience? Obviously, that wasn't your intention. Uh, no, it wasn't at all. I mean, at this point, people were still not quite taking Trump seriously. Um, and I, I wrote a note. I've been writing these updates for decades um, to, uh, to clients, friends, you know, whatnot. And, and in it, um, I, uh, I mentioned uh, that because a lot of people had been talking about Trump who had not yet really, you know, been discussed or considered as a foreign policy voice, right? I mean, the guy was a reality show star uh, and had a real estate background. So why would he have a foreign policy view? And I said, look, I said, to the extent that he articulates foreign policy, it's not isolationism. It's actually unilateralism and transactionalism. Because this is a guy who spent a lot of time outside the United States and was doing a lot of deals, right? I mean, in the UAE and in Georgia and in, you know, uh, the, the Kazakhstan and you name it. I mean, Panama, he traveled everywhere. You know, you would, in some ways, you would argue he was himself a globalist, a free trade guy, had immigrants working in all of his hotels. But, but he was a unilateralist. He believed in American power and the size of American power being able to force other countries to do what he wanted. And he was also very transactional. He saw relations with other countries kind of the way he sees real estate deals, which is get the best deal you can possibly get and then move on. But it's not as if, uh, you know, if you do a deal that leaves that person hurting, that that's going to affect your ability to do a great real estate deal in the future. 
So you don't have, you know, that continuity. It's a one-time prisoner's dilemma. Um, it's not a, it's not an ongoing game. So I wrote about this and I said that really the way you should think about Trump is America first. So anyway, uh, Maggie Haberman and, and, uh, and David Sanger, both of whom are, are, are friendly colleagues I've known for a while, and they both, um, get my, my weekly update and read it. They were just about to interview Trump for his first foreign policy interview, then candidate Trump. And they did. And they asked him, well, you know, do you consider yourself an isolationist? And he said, no, no, no. And, and then they said, well, how about America first? Would you would you call yourself America first? And he loves it. He embraces it. And they write all about it. And, and this becomes his thing. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, people like I was not trying to create his, uh, <laughs> you know, his slogan. Ian, I have to ask you about the dust up that you had with Trump last year on Twitter uh, when you tweeted that he had said Kim Jong-un is smarter and would make a better president than sleepy Joe Biden. Was that satire? What's the backstory there? Yeah, I I mean, you know, the, the funny thing, and I should know better, right? I mean, you know, he was he was in Tokyo, I think, at the time. And so I did something. I think the tweet was something like breaking, you know, in Tokyo, uh, Trump says that uh, that Kim Jong-un would be, uh, is smarter and would be a better president than sleepy Joe Biden. And, and I'm, I'm writing this thinking it is obviously ludicrous and will be seen as funny. And I remember it was, I think it was Memorial Day weekend. I say that because I was in Nantucket and um, I, I put my phone away and I went for a, a run and a breakfast and then, you know, went for a bike ride and came back several hours later. This is always a problem, right? When you send out a tweet, if you are not then on Twitter, which is brilliant for their business model, deeply insidious, but problematic if you're not someone that spends your life on your phone, I then come back and it has blown up. And I first think, oh, that's pretty funny. And then I realize the reason it has blown up is because there are many people out there with a level of Trump derangement syndrome um, including some Democratic congressmen and media types and others who see this and go, oh, my God, and assuming that that means that Trump obviously said that and then start posting it out. And so I then write back. I'm like, guys, like, it's fairly obvious. This is a completely ludicrous thing. I'm just having a little fun with the president, of course, you can't do that because the rules do not apply. Same rules the president do not apply to independent citizens, as we know, and we prove all the time. So then that, that gave Trump the license to come after me and say, ah, you see, fake news, completely ludicrous. So it's the whole thing was, uh, I mean, for, for a day, it was it was a bit of a dust up. Right. It was it was pretty funny. But uh, my as soon as that happened, as soon as Trump called me out, I did what one should do which is say I was it was meant as satire. I've got a puppet show, but I'm also a serious political scientist. I didn't make that clear. Apologies. I'll tell you something funny. Uh, so it was a few months later, uh, my assistant walks into my office with a smile on her face. She says, I think you're going to like this. Um, and it was a, a manila envelope hand delivered from the White House where Trump had apparently read one of my articles in Time Magazine, ripped it out of the magazine, said I was completely wrong, 
and some other stuff and signed his name on it and sent it over to me. Um, and I, I called up Jared and Jared's like, yeah, yeah, he, he, you know, he likes your stuff. He reads it. You obviously like he reads Time magazine. You amused him. So I, um, I had that framed and it's in our bathroom. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I think we, I feel like we have a, a, a you know, a pretty good functional uh, relationship. I absolutely love that story. That's a, that's fantastic. The thing is, okay, Trump, Trump doesn't. Trump. I'm, I'm sure that you know you, you can. You, you've talked to me in the past. I mean, Trump. Trump doesn't damage me emotionally. You know. I mean, I I believe he's the least fit uh, president that um, we've ever had. But I'm just not someone who's going to get all that exercised as a human being. You know. I mean, I've got my job, but. Uh, you know, it's not, I don't go crazy uh, with this stuff. And I think that a lot of people do and, and take it very personally. Um, and and it, it affects their analysis. It affects their ability to do their job. When your global office is five steps away from your bedroom, when your five-year plan turns into a five-day plan, when you're rethinking how you do business, that's when you know you're going through business as unusual at Export Development Canada, we're shifting too. We're widening our focus from helping Canadian companies go global to helping companies of all sizes simply keep going. Visit edc.ca for financial solutions and expert advice to help your company. Regardless of who wins the U.S. election in November, what would be your advice to that president and vice president team? Well, I'm a foreign. I'm I'm first and foremost a foreign affairs uh, expert on as a political scientist. So, I mean, what I think needs to happen is the United States uh, really needs to uh, take um, a a more constructive role in international architecture. We have a lot of institutions that are that are badly eroded, like the WTO. Uh, like the World Health Organization, like NATO, they they need either deep structural reform or complete remaking because uh, at the time the institutions were created by the United States, we had a global order that looked very different than it does today. We had pr- priorities that were very different than they are today. I mean, NATO is better than nothing, but NATO doesn't work very well for a United States whose principal antagonist is China. And we're much more concerned about technology fight than we are about, you know, sort of nukes and conventional weapons. I mean, if we were reconstructing uh, an alliance today, I don't think Turkey would be in it, not the East Europeans, probably not Italy, but we would have Japan. We would have Australia. We'd have Canada. Um, we'd probably have South Korea. We'd have Germany. We'd have France, the UK. How do we get there? Right. How do we how do we take the World Trade Organization and modernize it, modernize it? How do we include data? How do we focus more on a 21st century economy? Right. I mean, those sorts of things. I I want the American president to start focusing on big strategic issues that will that will set up our world order to function more effectively for the next generation or two. We're starting to do that on climate. Biden's talking a bit about that. The Europeans have been more effective. They're using this crisis, this pandemic, um, to actually think longer term about sustainability of climate. I, I think that if Biden is elected president, he will do some of that. But we, we need a lot more 
um, than, than just a sustainable climate policy for the United States. We, we need new global architecture. And since the U.S. is still the most powerful country in the world by a long measure, we're going to have to drive a fair amount of that with allies and in some cases with antagonists as well. So these multilateral organizations such as the UN, World Health Organization, G7, G20, they, they need reform. Is that what you're saying? They need fundamental structural reworking. And in some cases, they need to be blown up and create new ones, right? I mean, you know, today we've got a security council in the UN with veto power for the permanent members. Germany and Japan are not permanent members. Why not? Because they lost World War II. That's a stupid reason. These are the two largest economies in the world today that fully support rule of law and multilateralism, and they want to work more closely with the United States, and we keep them out because we can't reform the institutions. Ridiculous. We need an American president completely committed to that or creating something new. Um, that's pretty clear. How would you rate the performance of these multilateral uh, organizations during this pandemic? Increasingly poorly. Uh, but but I don't think it's their fault. I'm not blaming their leaders. I mean, the World Health Organization is a weak organization, but that's by design. I mean, they don't criticize the Chinese despite the fact that they covered up the first weeks of the pandemic. And that's because they need the Chinese to continue to function. They don't criticize the Americans when we have test kits that don't work and we should be just getting them from Germany. And they didn't say anything because we wouldn't tolerate that. We need a stronger WHO. In WHO that has teeth, that can actually function with a pandemic. And we now see the Europeans arguing for some structural reform and strengthening the WHO as an independent organization. But the one we have right now is pretty weak. I think that none of these institutions, I would say the IMF is functioning pretty well, actually. And it is interesting that, you know, President Trump, despite all of his alienation of multilateralism, generally has been pretty constructive with the IMF, both with Christine Lagarde and with Kristalina Gorgieva. Um, the relationship with Secretary Treasury Mnuchin has been quite positive. They've really done nothing to try to undermine it. Um, in part, it's because I think Trump doesn't understand what it does. And, and in part, because Mnuchin is, you know, of, of the cabinet members that, um, that Trump has to work with. He's someone that isn't a bomb thrower. He's not trying to blow things up. He's actually pretty smart. Um, and also because Ivanka had a really good relationship with Lagarde and very early on worked to tell her father, uh, just don't mess with these guys. And, and he didn't. So, I mean, that's kind of nice to see. Uh, but I mean, still the IMF is less relevant today than it was 10, 20 years ago. Because, I mean, you know, China's working through Belt and Road um, and because reform has come slower to the IMF than, than the geopolitical balance of power has changed the way the world operates. Because we're a Canadian uh, media organization, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your impressions of Canada. I mean, we've recently lost our AAA credit rating from Fitch because of our spending to combat the coronavirus crisis. You know, what are the risks and opportunities facing Canada at this stage? You know, what advice uh, are you giving your clients who might be interested in investing in the Canadian market? Well, I mean, it's good that energy prices have come back a bit uh, because that was obviously destroying, um, you know, Alberta. Um, 
And uh, Canada is this interesting place. You're, you're a commodity, a major commodities player globally, but you're also an advanced industrial economy with a growing tech sector um, and with some great uh, services too. Uh, I mean, Canada is a well-run country. You've got a social contract, a healthcare system, an educational system that generally outperforms that of the United States, um, a political spectrum um, that is, uh, I would say, generally more cohesive, less combative, less divided than the United States, though that's changing, of course, in Canada too. And you're also living right next to the world's most important power. And that's a huge advantage for Canada. And that's why, you know, when we started the dealings around the new NAFTA, the USMCA, there was never a question that it was going to get done because Canada has no choice. And when you started talking about 5G and flirting with Huawei, that was never going to work, right? Because the United States is ultimately, whether you like the president or not, is kind of irrelevant. It's all of your trade. It's all of your tourism. Um, it's it's all of, you know, the... Uh, the 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 engagement of your market is is going to be overwhelmed with with the United States. Mexico is the same story. And in a world where the U.S. is going to come out of this crisis a lot stronger than most of its allies, because we're the largest energy producer, because we have the global reserve currency, uh, because we have the best tech firms in the in the free world, at least. Um, and in many cases in the entire world, that's a big advantage for Canada. And I just think it's important for people not to forget that. And it's not, that's not me being American exceptionalist and saying you've got to listen to everything America says. You have to agree with us all the time. Not at all. I'm just saying that there is an enormous advantage that comes from being so tightly interwoven with the world's most important economy. It's a massive advantage. And you would undermine that advantage at your peril. It's an obvious thing. You don't have to say that politically all the time. Um, you can pretend it's not true, but it's like it's the air that you breathe, and uh, and it's it's important to understand that. And it's it's another reason why you have to hope that the Americans get coronavirus better as soon as possible, because the fact that we're not crossing each other's borders with ease right now all the time is actually it's not it doesn't matter much for the U.S. It's actually a big deal for Canada. It's actually a problem for Canada. So we we do. Uh, you know, for the sake of our Canadian neighbors, we kind of need to get our, our act in order a little more quickly. Canadians have obviously been very concerned about rising protectionism when it comes to trade from the United States. What do you see as the outlook for free trade uh, after November? I know it depends <laughs> to a certain extent on who wins, but how should Canadians be thinking about the future of free trade? Just that... Um, we are no longer, we have changed trajectory. We were moving towards more and more globalization, no matter what, that is no longer true. Technology, data, uh, the cloud is splitting in two, uh, and that will mean less efficiency. So, you know, anything with a chip in it, the internet of things is either gonna be aligned towards China or towards the United States, that's a problem. And uh, that's going to be less efficiency and less growth for everybody around the world. Uh, beyond that, I think that services and manufacturing, uh, you'll see uh, some stumbling in supply chain for reasons I talked about before. And also because you're accelerating the displacement that comes from deep learning, robotics, 
um, you know, 3D printing and the rest. And, and that will mean uh, shorter supply chains around manufacturing and services, plus the politicization of bailouts and relief. And then when it comes to the commodities economy, I think it's becoming more globalized, more efficient. Prices coming down. Um, and uh, that's that's something that you know is a problem for Canada to manage uh, because on balance, your economy does better when commodity prices are high. I want to ask you about China. Obviously, there are trade tensions between the United States and China. Canada has had its own uh, diplomatic and trade tensions uh, with China. China seems to be uh, also having tensions with Australia, India. What is China's role going to be in this new, new world order? It's a, it's a much bigger question than America's role, uh, because this is a bad year for Xi Jinping. Um, this is, uh, he's got flat growth. He's got the problems with Hong Kong. He's got uh, Americans being more assertive with the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese are more nationalist now than they were a few years ago. Um, I, you know, he's supposed to make himself president for life and he's up for his third term in 2022. It's not clear to me that's a slam dunk. You know, for the last 20, 30 years, China's been all about we're growing softly, steadily. And but we don't want to, you know, we don't want to take on a leadership role. We're poor and we don't want any trouble with anybody else internationally, unless it's about, you know, sort of core issues for us, unless it's about our domestic politics or Hong Kong or Taiwan. You know, we, we don't really play a role. And and that's changing. Xi Jinping has decided that he wants China to play a global role, a global leadership role. And he hasn't done a very good job in that regard. Uh, his foreign policy has met with enormous backlash. And that's a problem for them. And I'm not I'm not sure that Xi Jinping uh, gets out of this unscathed. Uh, China's going to have a hell of a lot of domestic corporate debt. They're going to have a hell of a lot of international debt to poor countries. They're going to have a hard time paying it off. And you're going to have a lot of recrimination um, against Xi Jinping and against China from a lot of countries around the world, including your own in Canada. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, if we're deciding that we want to destroy Huawei, which is China's most important tech company, I mean, they'll do everything they can to remake uh, Huawei is a true national champion where they make their own semiconductors and the rest, but that's going to take them a few years to do. They're going to be way behind. I'm not, I'm, you know, this is a real problem. That's a real problem for President Xi. So uh, I think the potential of, of instability and elite fracture in China as we go through this fight is real. And I think China might become more risk acceptant as a consequence of that. So it, it is a dangerous thing. That was Ian Bremmer, political scientist and founder of the Eurasia Group. I'm Rita Tritcher. Restoring Confidence is a Globe and Mail podcast. Its producer is Kyle Fulton. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you for listening. See you next time.